economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs of Reedy Melody Baker. I see you down the bunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Tarek Talawi. Tarek is an academic and activist who has been involved in student protest in the 1990s and the Arab Spring protest in Tunisia in the early 2000s. After teaching for various years at Rutgers University in the US, he returned to Tunisia to join the Southern Mediterranean University in Tunis, where he's now an assistant professor in history. Pre-COVID, he wrote me an email that he was writing a book on populism in Tunisia, which he described as the only Arab surviving democracy after the wave of the Arab Spring, which touches upon all the topics we will address today. So let's start with my standard introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported? Well, uh, it's a soccer team in Tunisia known as Club Africain, the African club. It's one of the oldest soccer teams in Tunisia, and it's known as the club of the people. As you may know, soccer in Tunisia and football in Tunisia is one of the most popular sports for wide audience, basically. So second, what is your favorite political song? It's by an Egyptian political singer, Sheikh Imam Isa. It's known uh, in Arabic, build your palaces on agricultural lands. And it's basically an anti-despotism, anti-crony capitalism that we have in the Arab world. It's made in the 1970s. It's well known throughout the student uh, movements. And finally, what is your favorite political book? My favorite political book is Lenin's book on imperialism. It's, I think, a political platform. It's, it's a book that was used as a political platform by so many anti-colonial movements and the elites of some anti-colonial movements in the 1950s, 60s, and then in uh, student leftist movements in the Arab world as well. So let's start with a very short historical background to Tunisia. Can you situate the country geopolitically and historically for people unfamiliar with the Middle East and North Africa or MENA region? Well, Tunisia is in the middle of the southern part of the Mediterranean, very close to Italy, very close to Europe, even historically. Many European nations occupied for some time Tunisia throughout its history. It's in North Africa. It's part of the Arab world. So it's a, it's a country that is in between different geopolitical spaces. But it's different than the rest of the Arab world. It's a small country, not only in size, but in terms of demography about 10, 11 million, depending how you count it, people. Tunisia is, however, known by having historically a powerful middle class, especially beginning from the 1960s, 70s. And this middle class is, I think, the, the key to answer so many questions about the specificities of Tunisia. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that as, as we go through the interview. Absolutely. So you were a leading activist in the student protest of the 1990s. What were they about? Well, the 1990s are very interesting in Tunisia because what happened is that by the early 1990s, the regime was able to crash down the student movements as they were eradicating the Islamist movement in Tunisia. The Islamist student movement at that time, in the beginning of the 1990s, was the main leading student movement by its size. When they were crushed, politics in the university were basically wiped out. 
So one of the main issues at that time in the 1990s was to regain freedom of speech within universities, but also to fight the new reforms, quote-unquote reforms that were happening in the educational system that were basically targeting the equality among students to access jobs by the end. So it was a dual kind of fight between these two issues, uh, the issues of freedoms and the issue of jobs. These years, the 1990s, were very difficult for a very simple reason, because the Tunisian regime of Ben Ali at that time was at its apogee. They were able to basically crash down any uh, voices of protest. So regaining freedoms within universities was a major challenge. And I think we were able to do that in very, very harsh conditions. And I think that was one of the reasons why the different movements for freedom, for anti-despotism, for democracy were regaining some steam by the end of the 1990s. And that's going to basically provide a platform for different political groups from the left, from the right, to agree at least on the fact that we can fight amongst each others, but we cannot do that if we don't have freedom of speech. And that created some kind of dialogue within the Tunisian elites that went beyond ideological divisions. And the regime at that time was playing on ideological divisions. And I remember the police was, when they would interrogate us by the middle of the 1990s, the main question, how can you work together, people from the left and Islamists, and how can you just ignore your ideological divisions? And clearly the regime was afraid of that in that phase. And that, I think, can provide an answer even for the platform of dialogue within the Tunisian elite after the revolution. Because one of the reasons that are going to facilitate the democratic transition, as we're going to talk later, is this possibility of dialogue that goes beyond ideological rifts. This is something that does not necessarily exist in other neighboring countries. But that's the main contribution, I think, for the 1990s for the student movement. Okay, so about two decades later, Tunisia was home to massive demonstrations again, but this time they went regional, and the so-called Arab Spring started in Tunisia. How and why did it start? First of all, the regime was not ready for any possibilities for other voices in the country. They crushed basically all possible alternative voices. They did not really allow for very basic freedoms of speech. They were basically having a policy of censorship in the internet. And they were using actually programs provided by the U.S. at that time to help them censor voices against the regime. That's the first thing. So crushing any possibility of dissent. And that created an atmosphere of basically where most of the elite was fed up with the regime. Even the elite that was anti-Islamist, that would be in principle with the regime, they started to have some kind of distance from the regime because they were crushed themselves. A second issue is corruption. The family of the president was the leading corrupt family in the country. And the president was like the boss of the mafia. And he was basically distributing the different markets of different fields to the heads of the different families. So corruption was so obvious and capturing wealth was monopolized by the family of the president. Thirdly, economic and social problems, especially in faraway regions, provinces from the coast of Tunisia. You know, Tunisia is, is not a very a big country. It's a very small country. And when I say internal regions, 
far away from the coast. I'm talking about provinces that are 100-150 miles from the Tunisian coast. But in terms of wealth, they seem very far away from coastal regions. And that's why the revolution really started there, in these internal provinces. Sidi Bouzid, Gasrin, uh, Gebes, Douz, and it expanded within a month to the capital, to the popular neighborhoods in the capital. Right. And so what was the Arab Spring? What characterized it? And was it a populist movement? Well, the Arab Spring is a variety of movements. It's a variety of different contexts. The Tunisian process was relatively easy. 300 people were killed by the police, but it's a very small price compared to other countries, compared to Egypt, which revolution started a few weeks after our revolution compared to Libya, a very big price compared to Syria. Thousands and thousands of people were killed in civil wars. So really, the Arab Spring is different processes, not one process. Was it populist? No, no, I don't think so. In the beginning, it was some kind of a revolutionary process where a minority of people, they're still a minority, not all the people went to the streets. Maybe only 15 to 20% of the people went to the streets at most. And they were speaking on behalf of the people. They were speaking on behalf of the rest of the Tunisian people. That's true. But in the beginning, it was mainly targeting basic elitist goals. And that's basically democracy, freedom of speech, and dignity for the rest of the people. In the process then, after the revolution happened, after the dictator left the country, there was a populist trend. The populist trend was, we are speaking on behalf of the people, especially when we got to the elections. The moment political parties got to the elections, it was a process of basically following your definition, the elite saying that they represent the popular will, la volonté populaire. And the political rifts were very deep because each political party was saying, I'm representing the revolution, I'm representing the people. So there was not really a political debate about programs. It was a political debate about the legitimacy to belong to the revolution. You have parties that say, we are the revolution, and the others are anti-revolution. So in that process, populism started to happen. Populism was within that discourse. So in what way did the Arab Spring change Tunisia, and in what way did it not change Tunisia? Well, it changed Tunisia because it allowed the possibility for the very strong middle class to establish a political process that is democratic, allows the possibility of changing political, ruling political parties, and establishing freedom of speech and the ability to absorb freedom of speech. So that was some kind of easing social divisions and social contradictions. But at the same time, it allowed an economic elite to dominate more the economy. Uh, the political parties became basically under the influence of a rich economic elite that became really powerful after the revolution. So the political achievements were not matched by social economic achievements. Social economic conditions remained the same. The provinces where the revolution started are still impoverished. And that's why... Little by little, and by the 2019 elections, there was this huge reaction against political parties. Political parties became a problem. And with that, we're going to see a clear populist movement 
that say we don't like political parties, we are the people and we're going to go for the elections based on that. So the 2019 elections was the process of the end of these semi-populist political parties that are going to lose a lot of popular support. And in exchange for that, you're going to have populist groups, but especially populist personas like Latin America, who basically say, we represent the will of the people. And current president of Tunisia can be defined among this group, but also other people who came in coalitions in the last elections, uh, who are present in the parliament, uh, represent the same idea. We are the revolution. We are the people. Different groups like that. Before we get there, though, in the Western media, it has become common to speak about the Arab winter, which refers to an authoritarian resurgence that followed the democratic upheaval of the Arab Spring. Do you think this is an accurate portrayal of what has happened in the last decade? Yes, it became an Arab winter because of the coming back of the counter-revolution. The counter-revolution that wanted to re-establish despotic regimes, especially in Egypt, but also in Syria, where Bashar al-Assad basically went through this bloody civil war to keep his power. But at the same time, it can be called partly an Arab winter because you have very extremist Islamist movements that are going to use the freedom of speech to reintegrate themselves again, to rebuild themselves again, and to start new civil wars. And that's the case for movements that are like Al-Qaeda. They use the space of also the weakening of the state because of the revolutionary process. Because, you know, in any revolutionary process, the state is weakened and you have a context of chaos. So these different extremist Islamist groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, used this context to rebuild themselves and to try to destroy the democratic process. So we had this intersection, the coming together of two wills, the wills of the pre-revolution despotic groups that lost power and they want to reestablish despotism, and the Islamist extremist groups who don't like democracy and they want to basically have a chaotic context of a civil war so that they can build on that. So these two wills came together in these countries to threaten and to basically cause the failure of any democratic process. In Tunisia, if we have an achievement, it's exactly that, that we avoided the impact of that, the impact of these two groups. And we at least kept the democratic process. So what explains that Tunisian exceptionalism? I wouldn't say that we have exceptionalism. We were about to lose the democratic transition in 2014. We were about to uh, basically for a civil war in 2014. Extremist religious groups were very powerful. You know, Tunisian foreign fighters and extremist jihadist groups are among the highest numbers. So there is no such an exceptionalism really, but it was the circumstances that came together. One of them is that there is no entity or group that can basically overcome all of the other groups. We don't have the Egyptian army in Tunisia, an entity that can impose its will on the process. We don't have an army like that. The police is divided by different unions. So it's like a balance of force between weak players. And that balance of force between weak players with some culture of the middle class that accept democracy and accept dialogue, all of that allowed Tunisia to remain democratic, mainly. 
As a political scientist, this directly makes me think about Arendt Leipart, who wrote about countries that have various minorities are more stable than countries that have two big minorities, as well as a lot of the arguments, of course, about the importance of a middle class to democratic success. So would that also then mean that other MENA countries cannot really learn anything from Tunisia? Because the things that you point at are not so easy to create in the short term. I think the process of learning in other countries, I'm going to take Egypt as an example, the process of learning from their own experience. That is, in the Egyptian case, what they can learn from Tunisia is the importance of dialogue, that political crisis cannot be resolved by violence. But in the Egyptian case, they should mainly learn from their own experience. That is, when you have the army in power, it might be a temporary solution, but it cannot remain all the time. That at some point, the army can become a burden and can become a problem in economic development and in resolving social contradictions and social problems. So I think each country is going to learn from its own experience. If we have something to present to the other countries of the MENA region, is that there is no future without democracy. With all of your different specific characteristics in each country, it's only some kind of political dialogue can resolve the problems. It's a difficult process. It's not an easy process, democracy. It's very painful. It imposes different concessions. But it's the only way forward, basically, for the MENA region. Without it, we're going to stall again in the past. And they think that's what's happening in countries like Syria and Egypt that are not able to move really forward. At a different level, Tunisia is in crisis yet again, too. And the Anakhna movement has called for a new political government to overcome the crisis. What is the Anakhda movement and what is their unique approach to political Islam? Well, in Islamism, we have a wide range of groups, but I think we should divide them into big groups. The group of jihadist, Islamist, extremists that don't accept the very basic principle of freedom of speech and democracy. And these kinds of Islamists, they believe in uh, an Islamic state. They decide the kind of Islamic state they have in mind and they impose by violence. And that's why they call themselves jihadists, basically legitimizing their violence against the rest of the society. The other group of Islamists, what we can call them basically moderate Islamists, they're Islamists who accept the democratic process. And in the MENA region, they are still the most important political group compared to the left, compared to uh, secularists. Islamist moderate groups are usually winning the elections or among uh, the two, three major political groups. This is the case in Morocco, in Algeria, in Egypt before the Muslim Brotherhood will crash down and so on and so forth. So Nahda is the main Islamist moderate group in Tunisia. In the last three elections, they were either first or second, but they always kept a major influence because their parliamentarian bloc was usually united and disciplined. And that's why they remain the most important political group. Yet, they are losing popular support. You know, Islamists in the MENA region, especially after the revolution, 
they captured popular support for a very simple reason, because they were seen as the main opposition group before the different revolutions. It's like in Latin America, the different leftist groups before democracy were the main opposition groups. So when democracy happened, they won so many elections, they're still winning some elections in Latin America. This is almost basically a similar process. But they are losing a lot of support because they are not providing economically and socially. What's interesting about a group like Nahda, they are very powerful in popular neighborhoods, but they are not providing economic and social reforms for popular neighborhoods, especially for impoverished regions, for impoverished classes, and so on and so forth. So the latest elections, basically Nahda came first, but it became a smaller parliamentarian bloc. They were about 70 to 80 MPs. They became 50 MPs, 54 they were not able to form a government. They lost constitutional initiative to propose a prime minister to the president, who's populist. And now we have this major conflict, contradiction between the president, who's anti-political parties, who's also anti-Islamist, and Al-Nahda, who's the first parliamentarian bloc, yet not powerful enough to form a major alliance, a powerful alliance. So it's like a deadlock now in Tunisia, between a government that is not basically supported clearly either by the president or by the political parties, a weak government facing two major crises, the COVID-19 crisis, which is now really ravaging in Tunisia. We became, I think, among the top five countries of new deaths in proportion to our population. And in terms of economic and social problems, the government now is in negotiations with the IMF to get a new agreement for a loan. And without that, they cannot really cover for the budget for the coming months. So it's really a major political, health, and economic and social crisis. And the political system really is not allowing for one entity to rule clearly the country. We have a semi-parliamentarian system, but we have an electoral law that does not allow for a clear majority. With all of these ingredients, Populism is rising because people are are basically fed up with traditional political parties and they are responding more to someone who says this whole system is bad and we should just go beyond the system. So you have the president who says we need radical democracy, not this kind of democracy. We don't need parliamentary democracy. He's, He's calling for a different system. I would call it radical democracy, but it's really another form of presidential system adapting itself to his own prerogatives. Or we have people who say democracy cannot work with us. Let's go to the times of despotism. And now the most popular party in Tunisia is a party in the opposition that clearly says that the old times of the despotic regimes are the best times of Tunisia. And they are on the right. Again, with the populist discourse emphasizing conspiracy theories and emphasizing the idea that all of these political parties that came after the revolution, they don't represent the Tunisian people. We are the patriots who represent the Tunisian people and we're going to provide a solution. And the solution is just to get rid of this whole Arab Spring. And for them, the Arab Spring is just a conspiracy by the US and by Israel to colonize again the Arab countries. So you have these populist responses to the crisis there. So Tunisia has introduced also parity requirements for women's political representation. What has been the impact of this formal requirement in terms of strengthening the political rights of women in the country? 
Well, it's certainly created some dynamics within political parties and within institutions because this imposes on political parties to have the same representation between men and women in their electoral lists. So if the head of the list is a man, the second in order should be a woman and, and vice versa. And that allowed for women to access key positions of power. But again, this does not mean necessarily more empowered women, because in many of these parties, the political leadership of these parties is still captured by male leaders. So outside of the parliament, where you have an increased representation of women, the closed room of creating politics and capturing power are still basically dominated by men. So finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about the Arab Spring? Well, the biggest misunderstanding of the, of the Arab Spring is that democracy is not made for the Arabs. There was this theory about the Arab Spring, about the Arab exceptionalism. The Arab exceptionalism is that Arabs cannot have democratic processes. That's something that we should always question. The reasons why counter-revolution came back, the reasons why jihadi violent groups, extremist terrorist groups are on the rise, are not related to the Arabs' inability to absorb democracy. There are economic, social, political reasons for this kind of process of counter-revolution that is really very similar to what happened after 1848 in Europe, after the 1940s, 50s in different countries where democracy tried to go on but then failed, 1960s, 70s in Latin America, and then the wave of military coups there stopping democracies. These movements or processes of counter-revolution happened elsewhere. Extremist groups happened elsewhere. But in the MENA region, there are reasons why this is happening in a more violent form and things are stalling more. And I think one of the reasons is the strategic importance of the whole region for different world powers. This is a region that is sought after by different world powers. Even democratic world powers, at some cases, are not really interested in helping to establish democracies, especially in countries like Saudi Arabia, where there is a strategic alliance between Gulf countries like Saudi Arabia and democratic powers like the US and the, the different Euro European countries. So these strategic interests are part of the problem, but also internal problems, internal contradictions, The high stakes of local elites from losing their interests is another major reason why this has happened. Thank you for coming on the show, Tarek. Thank you, Cass, and uh, it's really an honor, and uh, this is a great show. Thank you. If you want to know more about Tarek Kaloui, you can follow him on Twitter at at T underscore K-A-H-L-A-O-U-I Kaloui. This was another episode of Radical, the podcast on the radical aspects of music, politics, and sports, hosted by me, Kas Mudde. The music is from the Godots, with their classic song, Karl Marx-supported Millwall. I want to thank Tarek Sidik for helping me with the editing of today's episode. If you want to know more about Radical, visit our website at www.radicalpodcast.com. Radical spelled R-A-D-I-K-A-A-L. And if you like the podcast, please rate and subscribe. Also, please share it with friends and on social media. Thank you for listening. The economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past
Give me a chance to explain You see, come up to Courtney Newell He went with Danny Baker See you silly disco songs And Lady Melody Baker I see him down the dunker Playing with his beard No wonder that that's Captain Chow Turned out a little weird